And as always happens, there's a reception that follows, and which shouldn't happen, but too often does, there's that infamous open mic. Just going to warn you now, if anybody's planning to get married or anything, don't have the open mic. Uh, you sit there as aunts and uncles and friends take turns telling stories that nobody except a few individuals actually understand. Remember the time, well, well you, you remember that time when we, we had to run all the way home in our underwear? Your dad, he's never going to find out what actually happened to that boat. About six people laugh awkwardly, and unfortunately, nobody else is ever going to find out what happened to that boat either. And then the best man gets up and stands behind the podium and looks at the groom and says, Bob, Bob, Bob. And then Bob looks fearful and says, Tony, don't. And he says, oh yeah, Bob, this is my moment. Oh, come on, Tony, please don't, and says, yeah, pal, this is payback time. And then he pulls out a wooden spoon with a pink ribbon tied around it and says, the snorkel spoon is yours. And he walks over and gives the snorkel spoon to the groom who goes red in the face. And everybody else sits there going, what is going on? You're looking at your watch wondering, how much longer am I going to sit through this torturous event? And then you look at the program and you realize that there's still the 30-minute slideshow. <laughs> you ever been to one of those? You're there and you have no idea what's really going on because there's all this insider language. Language that only those that were there or those few people that were part of that event understand. Everybody else is clueless. It's easy to talk with insider language when we are on the inside. But many times we alienate everybody else that's on the outside. And this is true when it comes to our Christian faith as well. It's true when we approach the scripture. Uh, some people have argued and said, you know, if, if someone were to just grab the Bible and read all the prophecies in the Old Testament, they would obviously see by reading the prophecies that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The problem is, is that a lot of people have read all of those prophecies, and they have not seen that. They have not come to that conclusion. In fact, it usually becomes clear only after the fact, once it's been explained once they become part of the inside, after we're convinced, once we know the language, left on our own, it's usually just confusing. Take, for instance, the prophecy found in Isaiah 53. The prophecy that says, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. I mean, what do these words mean? Who is the he that this passage is speaking of? For those that have been in church all of our lives and maybe have had teaching on this, we may think, oh, this is so obvious, but that's only because we are part of the inside. 
you're hearing that for the first time, if you're looking at this without any context, you've got all kinds of questions. Who is this he? What is happening to him? Why is this happening to him? So what can seem obvious to us Christians is often not obvious to those outside of the church. And this can be the very thing at times that gets in the way of our witnessing. And that is we assume too much. We assume that if we just go and tell people that Jesus is the answer, that people will know what we're talking about. Not realizing that many people are saying, I didn't even know there was a question. The question of who this passage is talking about was the very question that was going through the mind of a man from Ethiopia 2,000 years ago. And studying this passage, he just couldn't figure it out. He was reading it, he was studying it, he was reflecting on it, and he couldn't make sense of it. In Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, we read this person's story. It says, as for Philip... Remember, Philip was the guy that we uh, talked about last week dealing with Simon the sorcerer. So it's the same guy, Philip now. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out and met the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the Candake, the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. And seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over there and just walk alongside of his carriage. So Philip ran over, and he heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip asked him, hey, hey do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I, unless someone instructs me? And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit beside him. The passage of scripture that he had been reading was the one that I just read earlier. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb is silent before the shearers. He did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And then the eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, was the prophet talking about himself? Or was the prophet talking about someone else? The story begins with Philip. Philip was one of the seven, along with Stephen, who was given the assignment of looking after distributing the food to the widows properly because there was an issue going on there in the church. Uh, they were given that assignment so that the apostles could spend their time preaching. And then in God's strange way, right after Stephen and Philip and another five people are told, okay, you guys are going to look after the administrative program in the church so that we can focus on preaching and teaching and prayer. Then the next three chapters are stories about two of the guys who were called to do the administration. It, the next three chapters is all about them preaching. Uh, God never seems to fit into our nice, neat categories of 
everybody's different role. It's a nightmare for those followers of Jesus who follow Jesus' apostle Robert, the guy who wrote the gospel called Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, Jesus is constantly saying, yeah, there's structure and there's things in certain place, but at the same time, I'm not really bound by all of that. And so it's good for us to remember this both end. And so God takes this Philip character and pushes him from dealing with Simon the sorcerer, as we talked last week, to now move even further out. Philip went to start talking with the Samaritans. As the gospel goes from the Jews, then to the people of Samaria, who are sort of half-Israelites. But now, Philip is being pushed even farther to go to the Gentiles. A reminder that this gospel message is not just for the Jews. Not even for just those like the Samaritans or who are sort of closely associated with the Jews, but for all people. And so now, God is pushing Philip to go to someone from Ethiopia. Someone that has no connection in a biological sense, with the people of Israel. And God says, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. See, I, I, I find when we hear God sending people on assignments for God to, to go against what is logical for us. Philip, I want you to continue spreading the message about me. And so what I want you to do is go travel down a desert road. Now when you think about that, human logic tells us that this is completely the wrong place to go. I mean, shouldn't we go to a city? Shouldn't we go to to kind of a mass rally? Or shouldn't we go to where there's all kinds of people? Go to a desert road? It's a little against what I would think would be the right place to go. But Philip, following the faith of Abraham, when God also told Abraham to get up and go, Philip obeyed. We read right after that, so he started out. You know, those four words are profoundly moving. So he started out. What simple and beautiful words of obedience. What complete opposite from uh, when we read the story of Jonah. Remember when God gave Jonah the assignment and it says, and, and Jonah went the other way. Here, Philip, in what seems to not even make sense, go to a desert road, Philip just says, okay, God. And so he started out. Many times, all God asks us for is obedience. Not to figure out, okay, if I make this decision, what's going to happen five years down the road? Or trying to calculate everything out and weigh all the... Many times God's just saying, you just need to make the first step. Go where I'm asking you to go. And the rest will become clear after the fact. That's what happens with Philip. Everything becomes clear after the fact. Uh, Because as he goes down this desert road, there along the road, Philip meets an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, for those of you that don't know what the word 
eunuch means. Basically, this guy has been castrated. He's a treasurer for probably the queen of Ethiopia. And so he's, there's a good chance he's a slave. And a lot of times those that worked in the higher aristocracy with the kings and queens, those slaves, they would castrate. And so he's a, a eunuch, obviously a well-educated eunuch. He's a treasurer. He's able to read. And he's also a God-fearing Ethiopian eunuch. Because though he's not a Jew, he has great respect for the Jewish God. In the passage here that we read about, we see that he's already gone to the Jerusalem temple to worship the Jewish God, and he's on his way back now, and he's reading from the Jewish scripture, the book of Isaiah. Also, the fact that he is from Ethiopia uh, means in that culture that from the perspective of particularly the Jewish people, uh, that he is from the outer ends of the earth. Ethiopian was often used in the Greco-Roman world as a term that was more generic than just what we think about as Ethiopia today with its borders on the map. Uh, Ethiopia was often referred to more generically as anyone from Africa with dark skin. They were seen as a people from a far off and exotic land at even the edge of the world. So this is very much uh, the gospels going to the edge of the world. I can't imagine what these people would have thought about how far away Cameroon is if they thought Ethiopia was the edge of the world from where Palestine is. In Homer's Odyssey, he speaks of the far-off Ethiopians, the furthermost people. So the movement of Acts is obvious. It's from Jerusalem <coughs> to the Jewish people out to Samaria, and now out, at least in the understanding of the people, and even figuratively, and we today know it globally, even now from Jerusalem to Samaria, now to the ends of the earth. It's for everybody. All people. And not only in the story are cultural barriers being crossed, from Jew to Samaritan, and now to Gentile, but also, we're, got, we're beginning to cross some of those social barriers as well. I mentioned he's a eunuch, he's castrated. According to the Old Testament Jewish scriptures, a eunuch was considered someone impure. In fact, anyone, the Old Testament says, with crushed testicles, let's just all... Just saying that makes me feel uncomfortable. But anyone with crushed testicles, the Old Testament says, was not allowed to enter the temple. They were seen as impure. And so this guy is doubly impure from the old Jewish perspective. He's a Gentile, and he's a eunuch. It, it almost seems like the start of a joke instead of an actual assignment from God. There once was a Gentile eunuch traveling down a desert road. I mean, that would seem like, okay, where's the punchline? But just as the joke is about to be unfolded, God interrupts the joke and says, wait, yes, that's true. There is a Gentile eunuch traveling down the desert road, but this is no joke. I'm now interrupting the story that you might have laughed at, and I'm saying, Philip, I want you to go to that 
precise person and to turn what might have been a joke into now a new story. I want you to go and tell this man about me. And so here's this castrated African Gentile from the perceived edge of the world in a chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah. And Philip approaches the chariot. And when he does, he hears these words being read out loud. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, the fact that this guy was in a chariot reading this book or this scroll out loud is not something that's unusual. He's obviously, like I said, educated and he can read. But reading out loud was a common practice. In fact, silent reading is a very new phenomenon. We just take it for granted, but we don't realize that really until the invention of Gutenberg's printing press and the advent of books in a more popular type of way, uh, people just generally did not read silently, privately, quietly. It's a a, a new thing. Even in the 5th century, a, a, a genius of the stature of Augustine wrote in his memoirs about something he observed in Ambrose, which he thought very unusual. Augustine wrote, as he observed Ambrose, when he read, his eyes scanned the page and his heart sought out the meaning, but his voice was silent and his tongue was still. Anyone who could approach him freely and guests were not commonly announced, so that often when we came to visit him, we found him reading like this in silence, for he never read aloud. Augustine, writing this about 1,500 years ago, uh, is, is astonished by this. And in fact, this particular memoir, this particular writing here of Augustine, is the first time in history we have any account of someone reading silently. And at this point, 1,500 years ago, it was unusual. And so the Ethiopian eunuch, even further back in history than the time of Augustine, in the chariot in his carriage. He's reading out loud just as everybody kind of did back then. Philip comes alongside of it. He is hearing what is being read. But the reader is not understanding what is being read. And Philip asks a great question. Rather than just assuming that this guy is getting it, as he's hearing him, he comes up beside the chariot and he says, Hey, I hear what you're reading. I'm wondering, do you understand what you're reading? That's such an important question. Sometimes we think that all we need to do is give somebody the Bible. Give someone the Gospel of John. Here, read this. You'll get it. People won't get it. If we're going to give someone the Gospel of John, it is imperative that later on, after they read it, we meet up with them and, they, and we ask them the same question. Do you understand what you're reading? 
so that like Philip, we can begin to dialogue. We can begin to teach. And so the Ethiopian eunuch is wrestling with this. What, what does this mean? See, this passage has had different interpretations. Even to this day, it has different interpretations. Obviously, people who are Jews today don't read it the same way we Christians read it. If, if, they, if they would, they would not, they, they would be Christians. To this day, many Jews interpret this passage as speaking of the Jewish people collectively. It, it describes to them the suffering of God's people. And so they would read it as Jews by the millions were herded into showers to be gassed to death during the Holocaust. So too, they were led like sheep to the slaughter. And their life was taken from this earth. And so there is that interpretation, that, that this is speaking of the Jewish people. Or as the Ethiopian eunuch uh, says, maybe the writer Isaiah is talking about himself. Who, as tradition says, also died a martyr, was actually put into a tree and sawed in half. Maybe Isaiah is talking about his, his future martyrdom that he knows is going to be coming. And so the Ethiopian needed someone to teach him. What does this mean? Who is this talking about? The Ethiopian has much better questions for a text of Scripture than a lot of our modern self-centered questions of, I wonder what this passage means for me. Uh, the Ethiopian didn't ask that question. What does this mean for me? He said, who is this talking about? Much better question. So Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, I, I can't unless someone explains it to me. And then he invites Philip and says, come up in here in the chariot with me and let's read this together and discuss this. And so it says that that's what they did as they rode along. And I'm hoping, I don't know because it doesn't say in the text, I'm hoping there was somebody else in that chariot because if the, it was only those two, this is like texting and driving at the same time. So hopefully there was a third person that kept steering while these two discuss this passage of scripture. And this is what we then read in verse 35. So, beginning with this passage about uh, a sheep being led to slaughter, beginning with this passage, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the chariot to stop. Oh, maybe that indicates that somebody else was driving this thing. And they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, which is kind of creepy and weird. The eunuch never saw him again, just poof, and went away rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north in the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. The, this encounter shows the importance in Scripture that we need to be people who share with others. Philip was 
able to use this opportunity the Holy Spirit gave him because he knew Scripture. We need to know our Scripture if we're going to be able to share with others. Philip didn't just know a, a couple of verses or a smattering of the Romans' road. Philip knew the story. He knew how it all fit together so that, beginning with that passage, he was able to connect all the dots and show this Ethiopian eunuch how the story of Scripture led to Jesus. Probably very similar to what Jesus might have done on the road to Emmaus when he showed those disciples how the whole story fit together. He was inviting the eunuch to choose a new adventure. To be disciplined into a, and, and, and discipled into a new story with Jesus now at the center of his story. Philip began with this very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I mean, it can't be stressed strongly enough how important it is that we know the scriptures and how it holds together. Because when we know something, we can explain it to others. In fact, being able to explain it to others is the very sign that one does know something. I mean, if you go up to someone and they tell you, I love football. I absolutely love football. And, and you say to them, you know, I've watched a couple of games and I don't really understand how, how football works. Could, could you explain it to me? And the person who said, I love football, if they said to you, um, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain it. You would probably say, how do you really love this sport? I mean, how can you not know? How can you not explain to me how this thing works if you love it? When we love something, it's evidenced by the fact that we can tell other people. It, it just starts to come out of us. In fact, sometimes when we really love something, we can even start talking obsessively about it. It's, it's what we're talking about all the time. We're always learning about it. Philip knew the Bible and could explain it. But the eunuch also teaches us something as well. And that is that we are not simply to be teachers, but we also need to be learners of Scripture. We need to always be people who are students of Scripture. And thus, there's the importance of listening to Scripture and to the teachers of Scripture. The timing of this passage fits well with the current men's studies that I'm leading on Wednesday nights. We just finished the last two Wednesday nights talking about Scripture. And the book by Daniel Miglior that we're reading, in, in the chapter on Scripture, wrote these very words. He said, like the Ethiopian official, we need guidance in the understanding of Scripture. If we were to cut ourselves off from the proclamation and life of the church as a medium through which we receive the biblical message, our understanding of Revelation would not be purer 
as biblicists mistakenly imagine, but greatly impoverished. We need teachers. The idea that all you need is the Bible is not biblical and usually results in many weird sects. If all you need is the Bible, why would Paul say explicitly in Scripture that you need teachers in the church? This is also why we give great respect to the church's ancient creeds, as we read this morning. It's the summary of what the teachers have said the Bible is all about. These are the core things that we all agree upon. And why the historic church's great teachers should be held in high esteem. Irenaeus, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Wesley. These people should be held in high esteem. Not that we have to agree with everything they said, but they are some of the best of the best of the Bible teachers. We should learn from them. Sometimes people say to me, you know, Pastor Steph, you get so much out of a passage. I just don't understand how, how you do it. And, and, and often they're thinking of our modern way of reading the Bible by kind of opening it and, and just reading it through and seeing what jumps out out of the page to you through a quick read-through. And, and I would have to say, if that is true, if that's how I prepared my sermons, then I would have to admit that I'm pretty brilliant to have made all of these connections on my own just by reading it and things, poof, oh, I just see all that. But the real answer of how I get so much out of a passage is I study a lot. It, it's... It's no secret. There's no magic. It just is through hard work. And when I study, it's by sitting at the feet of great teachers. Of asking the great teachers, explain this passage to me. What does this mean? Who are they talking about? How does this connect? What has the church said about this? Notice this picture of these graduates going into the ministry here. Notice what the school wisely put into every one of their hands. Notice how the school didn't just give them a Bible and say, go to it. No. They gave them a stack of books. Why? Because the school knows that these students who are going into ministry need to be continual students. They need teachers Teachers to help them interpret scripture. They need tools. And so they give them and gift them with tools. Here are some tools so that as you go out and as you preach the scripture, you have tools of other teachers to help you understand scripture. This is always how God has worked. Look as all the way back into the Old Testament times, back in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, we read about Ezra and the Levites reading from the book of the law of God, in other words, the scriptures, making it, they didn't just read it, and then just leave the people, all we need to do is read it, and walk away. No, it says that they read it, and then making it clear, and giving the meaning, so that the people understood what was being read. That's what Philip was doing. He was playing the role of being like Ezra or a Levite. 
making it clear, giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Now, of course, not all of you have the time or the training to do all of this, at least to the extent that, that I do, and that's totally okay. See, that's my calling, and it's one of the reasons why I'm one of your teachers. And you actually free me up by calling me, and by calling me, you allow me to, in my calling, have time to study and put together messages so that I can teach you, and you guys do all kinds of things to free up my time by the things that you do so that I don't have to do those things. It's, it's called being the body of Christ together. It's the kinds of things that Paul talks about, about we're not all hands, we're not all feet, we're not all eyes. We work together as a community, and we build one another up. It's the spirit behind what happened in Acts 6, which is some of the truth to that spirit of saying, okay, these people are going to preach and pray and focus on that. These people over here are going to administrate and do the food program, and they're going to focus mainly on that. That's how the church works. And this is how the Holy Spirit continues to work, through the community. Not mystically through individuals hearing voices in their head, but corporately. The Holy Spirit continues to speak through the church, primarily through the teaching office in the church, but always and consistently with Scripture. Thus, we should be cautious of coming to Scripture completely alone. Instead, we should be wise and humble, and in the words of the Ethiopian, be able to say, as we are approaching Scripture, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? But notice also that this was not simply about learning information. It was not simply about getting the facts right, though those are important, but it was also about an encounter. When the Ethiopian understood who this was talking about and what this meant and how the whole story of Scripture connected, he immediately says, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Now, this statement should kind of jump out at us because do you remember where we are? We're traveling down a desert road. So, traveling down a desert road seems weird enough, but that's where God sends Philip, and he just happens to meet this guy who's ready to hear the gospel and just needs it explained, but also now traveling down a desert road, boom, there's water! It's Jesus' story being told again, even in that illustration, in the fact that it's a story of life coming out of death. Look! Even here in the desert where everything around us seems to just be dead, there's water. The very roots of life. And so it's not just a story about knowing the story, but it's about being transformed and discipled into the story. And it, that begins with baptism. It doesn't just become something intellectual in the brain and in the mind, and in the decision-making of the Ethiopian, but it now became a behavior. The first step of obedience, when we get it, is 
to surrender ourselves to Jesus' story. And the way we do that is through baptism. Baptism is that first initial step of saying yes to Jesus' story. And it's saying death and new life has come to my story. That out of the desert has come water. And I enter into Jesus' story by dying to my old story and being raised to life out of the waters of life to a new story. And so when Philip heard God, he obeyed. When the eunuch heard God, he got out of the chariot, got into the water, came up out of the water. When the eunuch heard God, he obeyed. For scriptural knowledge without loving obedience is useless. As John Calvin, one of the great teachers said, the reading of scripture bears fruit with so few people today because scarcely one in a hundred is found to submit to its teachings. It's not just about learning it. It's about submitting to its teachings where the fruit comes. To know God in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit is to be immersed in Scripture and to submit to it. It's about faithfully learning from godly teachers. It's about faithfully putting into practice that which we are learning. And it's about faithfully explaining to others that all of Scripture points to Jesus. As the Friday night study that I'm leading on the Trinity, we actually just finished up this on the Trinity, we just read out of a book called Delighting in the Trinity, these beautiful words. When you see that Christ is the subject of all the Scriptures, that He is the Word, the Lord, the Son who reveals the Father, the promised hope, the true temple, the true sacrifice, the great high priest, the ultimate king. <coughs> Sorry. When you see all this in Scripture, then you can read, not so much asking, what does this mean for me right now, but what do I learn here of Christ? Knowing that the Bible is all about him and not about me means that instead of reading the Bible obsessing about me, I can gaze on him. And as through the pages you get closer and caught up in the wonder of the story, you find your heart strangely pondering for him in a way you never would have if you had treated the Bible as being a book about you. It's all about Jesus. And so in the tradition of Ezra and the Levites, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told the good news about Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we be people who are students of Scripture. Students of Scripture so that we find you in the pages. And Lord, we pray that we may surrender to you as we find you in Scripture. That we will walk in obedience when you call us like you call Philip. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for revealing yourself to us so that we can know you. Thank you for giving us the Scriptures so that we can know Jesus. 
And may we follow Jesus now, each and every day of our life. Amen.